in Laredo, Texas. Sirens have become part of the soundscape. The pandemic has hit this American city harder than most. The spring surge, the summer surge, then a merciless winter spike. Laredo was not spared from any of them. Not one. COVID-19 has kept Laredo in a vice for nearly a year. A vice that's only now beginning to loosen ever so slightly. According to figures maintained by the state and most recently updated on February 6th, just over 33% of hospitalized patients in Laredo's trauma service area had COVID-19. Now that's down from nearly half a couple of weeks ago, but it is still staggeringly high. Since March of last year, Laredo has been taking on water. By June, when we first met a cardiologist named Ricardo Cigaroa, the buckets with which they were trying to bail were full of holes, as he told us at the time. An explosion of COVID-19. Every single hour, patients with shortness of breath, fever, testing positive with COVID-19 were coming into our emergency room here at Doctors Hospital in all the freestanding emergency rooms. We went from approximately three to four intensive care unit patients in this hospital to full capacity. They didn't have enough beds. They didn't have enough medicine. They didn't have enough ventilators. And they didn't have enough healthcare workers, especially after the first wave in Laredo in March took cruel aim at caregivers. We had over 150 employees, physicians, nurses, housekeeping, cafeteria workers uh, that were infected early on, and many of them became critically ill. So our intensive care unit for COVID was filled with employees. Dr. Cigaroa had become singularly focused on this disease and its assault on his city. He started going on TV in the spring to educate people about how to flatten the curve. Here he is on a Laredo TV station back in April. There's nothing to do other than to follow uh, the recommendations of wearing the mask. Wash your hands frequently. Don't touch your eyes, your face. And avoid touching other people. Because those really are the dangerous ones, right? The ones who don't know they have it and are showing it. But But that's why the recommendation is everybody should wear a mask. He began doing live broadcasts on Facebook, giving viewers a chance to walk a mile in his PPE. Momentos de reflexión. La primera muerte de COVID-19. He implored people in English and in Spanish to take this disease seriously. To my beautiful community of Laredo, this is just a quick message to advise you that uh, COVID-19 infections are raging through our community. Over the last 12 hours, our intensive care unit has failed and is over capacity. We have patients in the emergency room waiting for intensive care unit beds. These messages almost feel like radio transmissions from a soldier trapped behind enemy lines. A soldier who is pretty sure no one is listening, but who's compelled to talk anyway. Because maybe, maybe someone is listening. And maybe it will make a difference. Sierra talks so much that Texas Monthly has called him the Dr. Fauci of South Texas. But Sierra thought he could 
and should do more than talk. So the Princeton and Harvard Medical School educated doctor started taking his Toyota Tacoma pickup on the road. He started making house calls to COVID patients in Laredo and in Nuevo Laredo, Mexico, just across the winding Rio Grande that divides the two cities that in many ways are one. Good morning, Vicente. He also turned his thriving cardiology practice into a COVID clinic. So uh, an EKG in the works. All of this while he fights City Hall to do more to slow the spread of this virus before a fourth surge drowns them and fights the state to send more vaccine. This week on a Petri Dish Side Dish, we talk to the doctor known as the Dr. Fauci of the border about fighting the virus in one of the nation's COVID hotspots. So I'm Dr. Ricardo Cigarroa. I come from a family of physicians. We've been in Laredo nearly 100 years. We'll have been here 100 years this next year. Um, I've been practicing medicine here for 30 years. And uh, my son, the fourth generation, just joined our practice six months ago. So we've had a commitment to both healthcare and education in our community for a very long time. And I'm the son of probably the best physician that ever graced our country. He practiced medicine for 71 years. Uh, he was brilliant, but incredibly compassionate. He was probably the first Hispanic at Harvard Medical School. He graduated second there and uh, came back home and is very beloved. He passed away last year, but he taught us what it is to be a physician and to be um, incredibly caring for our fellow man. Cigarroa is 62 years old, and two things become immediately clear when you're talking with him. One, he reveres his late father. And two, he's passionate about Laredo. Oh, I love my community. Laredo's a beautiful place. It's a city now of about 280,000. But it's a city of families that have lived here for generations. And... Um, so that's the beauty of this city, is uh, we've all known each other for so long. It's flat and arid. It rarely rains. Not too many tall buildings. Uh, the neighborhoods are um, in the south and the west, in most of Laredo, uh, homes right next to each other. Uh, many times not separated by fences. It's a young community, so lots of children uh, playing in the streets. It's a, it's a border town, and uh, as a border town, it has uh, a lot of beauty because we enjoy two different cultures and uh, the best of both. Laredo is an old city founded in 1755. In 1840, it was briefly the capital of an independent nation separate from Texas or the United States or Mexico called the Republic of the Rio Grande. Its population is, according to the 2010 census, 
more than 95% Latino, with the vast majority of its citizens having Mexican ancestry. After all, the land some families have lived on for generations, and some for centuries, was once Mexico. Laredo reaches east from the Rio Grande, and Nuevo Laredo reaches west. Really, though, the two cities are one, Cigaroa says. So Laredo is a border town, and uh, we neighbor Nuevo Laredo, Tamaulipas, which is in Mexico. But we're really one community. It's fluid. Our families live on both sides. And they share a culture, which Cigaroa delights in. Laredoans and Nuevo Laredoans are gregarious, generous people, he says. We really uh, enjoy each other's company, and so gatherings are very important. Families will get together every Sunday, and they have what we call comidas or carnazadas, and the extended family meets, generations usually, and enjoy each other's company. So here's a quick little lesson for those who may not know. Carte asada literally means grilled meat. But it carries a double meaning. A carne asada is also a type of family gathering that typically features tortillas, salsas, music, cervezas, and lots of laughter. Oh, and grilled meat. The meat is definitely a key part of it. But a carne asada isn't just Dinner, it's a cultural experience where family and friends gather on the weekend to share stories, experiences, and enjoy each other's company. They very much look forward to their weekends and their carne asadas. Part of the fun lies in the anticipation of the event. Carne asadas are as much a part of Mexican culture as, let's say, soccer games. In a way, they are their own religious experience. But that has been one of the most difficult things to stop in the COVID era are the gatherings uh, because it's what we do. COVID has made everything difficult, especially in Laredo. We have been besieged by this virus since May. Dr. Sierra says the summer surge was particularly tough. The number of COVID cases rose from fewer than 1,000 in June to more than 4,500 in July. The only real treatment at the time was the antiviral medication, remdesivir, and there was very little of that to be found in Laredo back then. So the majority of people had no treatment other than supportive care, which means what? Oxygen, a face mask, BiPAP, but that doesn't work, and then ultimately ventilators. So you know what happens to patients on ventilators with this disease. And so our death rate was just ridiculous. And in July, Cigaroa also got sick. So I had taken care of hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of COVID patients before I got ill. And I always heard, you know, it's... uh, It's a disease that's very scary, it's very lonely, um, and often talk to patients about it. But when I got it, um, I played the math game. said 98% of people with COVID survive. So I went to bed, and I had fevers, higher fevers, 
And then I started getting short of breath, but then I said, no, it's anxiety, and I waited too long. I waited 12 days before I went to the hospital. By the time I got there, I had pretty good pneumonia. But the feeling, once you're in the hospital, is one of fear. You start thinking and making sure that you've left things in order and wondering what direction the virus is going to take. And loneliness, you have a lot of time to think. And that loneliness uh, is very sad because you want your loved ones to be there with you, especially if it goes south. And they just can't be. Too tired to pick up the phone and answer texts and pages and, you know, so you're just lying there exhausted. But you know, the loneliness is the hardest part of it. And, uh, and your brain, uh, you really have to discipline it uh, to be positive and not to lose hope. So it's a, it's a mind game and it's discipline and, and you have to keep focused and say, okay, I'm going to get through this. I'm going to be all right. Sigueroa says during the peak of his illness, he felt like he was being held underwater. I tell a story. When I was lying there the third day, I was really short of breath. My oxygen saturations weren't so great. Uh, I knew I was getting better, but I still had the fear that it might, you know, that it might go any direction. I've seen people who are fine and the next hour they're gone. So I'm lying there and I say, you know, I'm pretty tired. So I start thinking and I said, you know, if it's time to go, I'm going to, I'm going to start meditating. And I started meditating, got into a very tranquil zone. It was about three in the morning and I saw a little bit of light and I said, light, that's good. If I'm leaving, I'm probably going to heaven because everybody always says they see light. And then I said, you know what? I better confess. <laughs> so I said a little confession. And then I said, I think that confession's worth 10 Hail Marys. So I said my 10 Hail Marys. And then I was getting ready in case it was time. And then I started laughing. I said, my God, even at the very edge, close to death, you didn't tell God all of your sins. <laughs> so I think he sent me back until I can confess. <laughs> or to do more doctoring. Having gone through it and coming back, um, totally different person and a much better physician. Because every patient with COVID, I know exactly what they're feeling, what they're sensing. And uh, no matter how many I see, every single one of them I treat with love and kindness and give them their time uh, because I know what they're feeling. And so it made me a much kinder uh, and gentler person. Which brings us to how Dr. Sigueroa went from being a cardiologist with a fancy Princeton and Harvard pedigree to an old-fashioned doc who makes house calls. When COVID began in March, remember, there was no treatment. They were treated like lepers. Someone had COVID. The hospitals didn't want them in their hospital. We told everybody to stay at home. Don't come unless you're short of breath. The neighbors would be furious if they had somebody next to them with COVID. 
and made it clear that they were. The patient with COVID was put in a garage where there was no ventilation in common with the home. And that's when I started to make house calls because I realized that these patients were being abandoned. And you'd walk into the garage and you'd see this mother, 35 years old, sitting there, breathing hard. In this instance, she was a nurse. And I said, you're short of breath. What are you doing? And you don't look well. Why aren't you in the hospital? And she said, well, two reasons. One is they tell us to stay home. And two is, I don't want to leave my children. If I go to the hospital, it's probably the end of it. And they can't come visit. My husband can't come visit. And so just walking into that room and talking to them and holding their hand, you would see a dramatic change in their perspective. In other words, they thought, oh my God, he came in here, he touched me, he talked to me. Maybe I'm not going to die. And then if they were sick, well, we'd put them in our car and take them to the hospital. But I guess the beauty of it from a physician perspective, Bonnie, is although I've been very busy my whole life, I never realized what it was to be a whole physician, to understand that it's not just a disease. You walk into that home, you see the patient, her fears, you see the fears of her husband, you see her listening through the wall and her children eating. So from a physician perspective, I matured and I understand, I understand now what it is to be a physician. I understand what my father uh, was. So I asked Sigaroa if he remembers the moment when he decided that he was going to leave his office and get into his pickup and go into people's homes or their garages and treat them there. What was the thing that pushed him to say, yes, I don't care if it's unconventional or even if it seems crazy, this is what I'm going to do. It comes back to my father. My father was... uh just an amazing physician. And uh, of course my mother, also very religious, uh, always, 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 they emphasize that we need to take care of those who didn't have the same opportunity that we were given. And that was an expectation. And I think all of mom and dad's 10 kids have done the same. And um, so when COVID came, I remember sitting here in my office with my feet up, saying, having the feeling that this COVID was going to just be very, very difficult and was going to be where physicians and healthcare providers were going to need to focus on. We took an oath when we graduated from medical school that we would take care of the ill with great respect and dignity. So I sat here in my office that day, and I remember it very clearly. My office looks out 
to the cemetery. And I was up on the fifth floor of a beautiful hospital. And I remember thinking, who's going to come first of all to the hospital for cardiology care to check your blood pressure or your sugar or get your routine exams in the era of COVID? People are going to stay home and they should. And then I said, who's going to take care of these patients, if not us? With respect to the fanciness, Harvard Med School, Princeton education, all of that is given to us for one reason and one reason alone. And that's to take care of each other. There's nothing else. Obviously, physicians do well in the, you know, economically and whatever, that sort of uh, comes along with it. But in this time, it's, it's not about money and we take care of everybody, whether they have money or not. This is about taking care of each other in a pandemic when the world is in a crisis. And then each evening, he sees more patients in his cardiology offices, which are now a cobbled together COVID clinic. He and his staff evaluate them, they treat them, or they send them to the hospital for care, whether they're insured or not, whether they have money or not. And anyone can walk in, all the new, new patients, patients that I've seen before that are here for follow-ups. Every day we see maybe five to ten people that are in distress that we hospitalize, take care of, most of them survive, and you know you made the difference in that patient. I will never cancel a COVID clinic because I know that in every COVID clinic, we have saved people. We have made the difference. In those clinics also, I get beautiful hugs from patients who've recovered. And those hugs, they give me the strength. But I think those COVID clinics are, are what keep me going. And every day, every day I said, if I would have canceled clinic today, where would this patient have gone? So I think that keeps me going. I see, I see evidence of making a difference. Now, here we are in February and Laredo remains a COVID hotspot. Yes, better than it was a month ago, but still one of the hottest spots in the country. I asked Dr. Cigaroa how we got here. One, we couldn't shut down the city because of the governor's order that we can't. Two, our love of family gatherings. Three, you can't see the sniper. So human nature is to deny. Uh, we are in the position that we're in. So what should city and county and state leaders be doing about this? There are only two things that are going to make a difference. Quarantine and vaccines. If you look at the history of the plagues, if you look at the plague of Justiniani in 547 A.D., if you look at the plague of Italy, the plague of London, one thing solved them all. 
and it was quarantine. And quarantine works. Unfortunately, we feel that we can control nature, but nature is too much of a challenge for us. And so if we didn't have the vaccine and this virus would continue to drill and drill and drill and mutate and, and all of a sudden we would get to the point where you would have to make the right decision. Money versus life. Right now we're banking on money. But as the virus becomes more and more contagious and all of your employees start getting it and the death rate goes up, ultimately you'll have to make the right decision. We're not there yet. And of course, the state won't allow it. Sigueroa has been begging the city and the county to shut down for two weeks. But the state prohibits it and has shown that it's willing to sue over it, as it did in El Paso last year. So, vaccines. Sigueroa says these are the key to getting our lives back. He says they will be the thing that saves humanity. So the one thing that can save humanity, you have to ask yourself, How are we handling it? Are we distributing it correctly? And I would have to say that we're doing a terrible job. The national vaccine rollout has been a wreck, and places like Laredo do seem to be getting the short end of the stick. I asked Sigueroa what his concerns are specifically about the vaccine rollout so far. Oh, my God, you're getting me. You're going to get me into big trouble now. It goes back to the whole vaccine distribution process and states making decisions. It's not fair and it's not right. And I want to make one example. You take Laredo, Webb County. Laredo, Texas is in Webb County. The population of Webb County, close to 300,000. You take Lubbock County. The population of Lubbock County is close to ours. Why do we get 30,000 and they get 77,000? The border has been the bastard child of Texas forever. The last to get universities, the last to get a medical school. And now this? And now this? Now, In my heart, I don't want to think it's discrimination. I want to think it's stupidity. However, given our history, the perception sure is terrible. And it should be corrected immediately, and it hasn't been. Since Sigaroa and I spoke, the state has allocated more vaccine doses to both Lubbock and Laredo, but the disparity is still striking for counties with similar-sized populations. As of February 8th, the state has sent more than 86,000 doses to Lubbock County and just over 39,000 doses to Webb County, which is where you find Laredo. And the question of possible discrimination is an important one, as, as I mentioned earlier in the show, Laredo is more than 95 percent Latino, and there have been stark racial disparities in vaccine allocation in Texas and nationwide. 
According to the Kaiser Family Foundation, as of February 1st, Latino people made up 43% of the COVID cases in Texas and 47% of the deaths. Statewide, Latinos comprise 40% of the total population and only 16% of those vaccinated. So I asked a rep at the Department of State Health Services, Chris Van Dusen, about the disparity between the number of vaccines allocated to Lubbock versus Laredo early in the rollout. He explained that the first doses were to go to hospitals and healthcare providers to vaccinate their employees, and that Lubbock has more large healthcare providers with a large number of workers to be vaccinated, according to self-reports from both communities when they signed up to be vaccine providers. Lubbock has well over a dozen hospitals. Laredo has two. Dr. Cigaroa isn't moved by that argument at all. I say bullcorn. Laredo's the number one place in the country. Compared to Lubbock, what's their incidence compared to ours? Sure, we don't have that health infrastructure. But if you're a true leader and you care about human life, you send the National Guard down here to vaccinate us. You don't tell us you're not prepared for the vaccines. You come do the right thing. In fact, it's because Laredo doesn't have the medical infrastructure of Lubbock. Laredo is what the government calls a medically underserved community that vaccines are such an important weapon in that city's fight. It would be a great relief to the healthcare workers in Laredo if their hospitals weren't constantly overwhelmed by a relentless stream of COVID patients. They need a break. So from the healthcare perspective, within the hospitals, although all the nurses and the doctors are at the limits of what they can do, You know, code blue after code blue after rapid responses after rapid responses. Many, you know, at the end of the day, just go home in tears. But when we're together, it's just a look in our eyes, a split second. And when you see each other in that split second, you know, you don't have to say it, but you know that Um, we're there for the right reason. And so it is difficult, but it's balanced with this is what we're here for. So, Dr. Cigaroa, before we go, I want to ask you how you feel about being called in both Texas Monthly and the New York Times, the Dr. Fauci of the Texas border. So he's brilliant. He's a great researcher. He's a good communicator. I think that What we have in common certainly is not the brilliance, but we are both dedicated. We both feel it's very important to communicate to our loved ones, to our communities, and we're not going to abandon shit. And so um, it's uh, a beautiful thing to be compared to him. Thank you so much for everything. Dr. Sigaroa. I've spoken to so many healthcare workers during this pandemic, people with hearts singularly dedicated to saving lives at great risk to themselves and 
with spines of steel. I am never not overcome with awe at these men and women, whether they're in small towns or big cities or in mobile units roaming long stretches of countryside to help people through this pandemic. Learning of these people and talking to these people just fills my heart with hope. We are going to get through this thing. The next couple of months may be as difficult as anything we've experienced over the last year across the nation and in Laredo. More contagious COVID mutations are starting to skip through the population, including in places like Laredo. Dr. Cigaroa is sure at least one of them is already there. He says it used to be that when one person in a family got infected with the COVID virus, a few others would become infected too. Now, entire families are getting infected, which, in a place like Laredo, with many multi-generational households, means grandma and grandpa get infected along with all the kids and the working-age adults who support everyone else. But Sierra has been clear. He won't abandon ship. He will keep doing his house calls and holding COVID clinic hours at night. And he'll keep making noise, advocating for his patients, some of whom are descended from his father's patients, who are descended from his grandfather's patients. Dedicated hearts, spines of steel. Mr. Rogers used to say, in a crisis, look for the helpers. In Laredo, look for Dr. Cigaroa. This episode of Petri Dish Side Dish was produced by Texas Public Radio reporter Maria Mendez and me. Our sound designer is Jacob Rosati. Our executive producer is Fernanda Camarena. TPR's news director is Dan Katz. Mark Mehmet is the managing editor of the Texas Newsroom. This podcast is a production of TPR and the Texas Newsroom, a collaboration between public radio stations across Texas and NPR. I'm Bonnie Petrie. Talk to you soon. <laughs>